Okay, Leviticus 1 through 13, or sorry, Leviticus 26, 1 through 13. You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their seasons, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Their threshings shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand. And your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this reading of your holy and sacred word. Father, we come before you uh, this morning and with this prayer, Father, we do confess before you of our inability in and of ourselves Uh, to profit from this word. Father, we ask that, Lord, you would teach us, that you would speak to us, that you would guide us, that you would lead us, Father, as we study your holy word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. In verse 12 of our text, the Lord says to his people, I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. Now, this statement, some of you have probably already picked up on this, but this statement comes in the context of a number of covenant promises. If you'll just review this with me for a moment, uh, we'll see that God promises the blessing in verse four of a, I might summarize it this way, of a plentiful harvest. If you look at verse five, we could say that God is promising plenty of bread. I think you could see that. Uh, Verse 6, peace from enemies and wild beasts. Uh, Verse 7 and 8, victory in battle, which results in peace. Uh, Verse 9, lots of children. Uh, Verse 10, prosperity. You know, if you look at verse 10 there, uh, you know, you shall eat the old store long kept and shall clear out the old store to make way for the new. Uh, to a, a farming society, that's prosperity, isn't it? That'd be prosperity. And then if you look at verse 11, the Lord says, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. 
My soul shall not abhor you. Now, this would have been great news to the original audience because the original audience would have understood and been able to conceive of the opposite of this. They would have been able to conceive quite easily, actually, of the Lord abhorring them. Does that make sense? Or I could say it this way. They could have easily conceived of the Lord rejecting them. So when God says in the next verse, I'll walk among you and will be your God, there would have been cause for great joy. Cause for great joy. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's, I think for the most part in our culture, and not just in our culture, but also in, uh, for many of us in the church, it is practically inconceivable to us that God would abhor us, that God would reject us in any way. I think that's practically inconceivable. I think that's one of the primary reasons why people aren't coming to Christ. I I think we say to ourselves, why wouldn't God receive us? Why, you know, of course God would be our God. Why wouldn't he be our God? Well, as soon as we express that kind of notion in our hearts, as soon as we ask that kind of notion, why wouldn't God be our God? We're expressing incredible pride. Incredible pride and blindness to really what we really are. And this incredible pride and this incredible blindness is really extinguishing wonder and joy over verses like verse 12. Where God says, I'm, you know, in verse 11, I'll dwell with you. Verse 12, I'm going to walk among you. I'm going to be your God. And you will be my people. We just take that completely for granted, don't we? In this series, and I I was kind of joking with uh, Donald, I think, a week or so ago, that, you know, I've been asked to, to teach on covenantal baptism and as I've thought about doing that, I thought, well, you know, I mean, I, I don't think that the covenants are something that are real, very, very well understood. Uh, probably rather than just doing one single message on covenantal baptism, we probably ought to do a small, at least one message on the covenants. And as I thought about that, I thought, well, I don't know that I can really do justice to this in one message. So I joked with Donald, I turn everything into a series. Well, here we are again in another series. Um, but... This is all covenant language here. And what I would like to do for the next few weeks is to speak about this covenant language, speak about the covenants. Uh, This morning we're going to look at one of the covenants and next week we'll look at the covenant of of, uh, works and then the covenant of grace and then uh, we'll look at covenantal baptism to follow. And that'll take us right up to our vacation. And when we come back from vacation, we'll start our series in Romans. But... uh, until then, I hope that this series will, will, will humble us all, myself included, because this pride that I'm talking about really is wonder-killing, joy-killing pride. Uh, it, it, the pride needs to, be, uh, it needs to come to the surface that it can be repented of and dealt with so that, we can, so that our hearts may be filled afresh with the wonder. When God says, I'll be your God, that is not a small thing. Uh, it's something that we, I think, take for granted because we've heard it all our lives, perhaps. 
that is not a small thing. So before we go any further, I mean, when I say the word covenant, I mean, how familiar are you with the word covenant? Uh, do we do we know what covenants? Do we know anything about the covenants? Uh, if you're fairly familiar with it, raise your hand. You know, some of you are good. Um, when we turn to the pages of Scripture, we find covenants all over the place. In fact, the word covenant comes up for the first time in Genesis 6.18. It's a covenant with Noah. We have these words, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife, your sons, uh, wives with you. That's the first time we have the word covenant, first time it appears in the English Bible. But that doesn't mean that there aren't covenants prior to that. Just because the word covenant isn't there doesn't mean a covenant isn't present. We're going to see uh, that there are many places where the covenant is present, but the word covenant isn't mentioned. In Genesis 15, we have a covenant with Abraham, a very important covenant we'll look at in a couple of weeks. In, Genesis, or in Exodus 24.8, we have uh, God entering into a covenant with Israel. Uh, the, the verse reads, And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Uh, we could think of the um, covenant with David. Um, and we could think of Jeremiah, yeah, Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah speaks of a new covenant, right? And we might go into the New Testament and think of Jesus. Jesus speaks in covenantal language uh, when he institutes what we call the Lord's Supper, doesn't he? And I'm always careful every time I officiate communion, I'm always careful to say, you know, to repeat those, those important words, you know, during the supper, Jesus, he, he, he lifts the cup, doesn't he? He says, this is the cup of the new covenant poured out in my blood. So he's using covenant language there, isn't he? Um, furthermore, we find covenants between individuals. Abraham enters into a covenant with Abimelech. Uh, concerning the seizure of a well. Uh, later, his son Isaac enters into a covenant with Abimelech, possibly the same Abimelech that his father had entered in. Uh, perhaps uh, this Abimelech was uh, a junior or Abimelech III. We don't know, I don't know that we know. Uh, but nevertheless, Isaac enters into a covenant with Abimelech. Jacob and Laban enter into a covenant. Uh, David and Jonathan, and et cetera, et cetera. In the English Standard Version, the word covenant appears something like 325 times. Uh, so we, we find this word covenant all the time uh, in, in the word of God. Uh, I have a quote I want to share with you from the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's chapter 7. The, it's a little thick. It's a little hard to sit and, and take this in. I'll go through it slowly. Um, the distance between God and the creature is so great. In other words, the distance between God and us is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him as their creator... Now, listen to this part. Yet, they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. Now, it's, it's hard to sit and listen to a, a statement like that and catch it, I know. Uh, what's being said here is, okay, we could never have any fruition of God as our reward or our blessedness unless God would, wouldn't have first condescended and entered into a relationship with us by way of a covenant. That's what it's saying. So whatever this covenant is, it's essential to our, our joy in God, our reward in God, our salvation by God. 
Okay, does that sound reasonable so far? Now, this wouldn't be complete without a quote from Spurgeon, now would it? One of my favorite preachers, we have to quote him somewhere. I haven't quoted him in a long time. But Charles Spurgeon put it like this. He said, the doctrine of the covenant lies at the root of all true theology. It has been said that he who well understands the distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace is a master of divinity. I am persuaded that most of the mistakes which men make concerning the doctrines of Scripture are based upon fundamental errors with regard to the covenant of law and of grace. May God grant us now the power to instruct and you the grace to receive instruction on this vital subject. End of quote. We'll return to that quote a few times before the message is over. Uh, I, I think at this point I should say something. Um, if the idea of covenant is new to you, and undoubtedly it's new to some of you, and if you're anything like I was when the idea of covenant was new to me, uh, then you're asking yourself this question right now. What in the world is a covenant? Uh, which is what I was doing uh, as this concept was being uh, presented to me for the first time many years ago. Uh, one of the best books ever written on the covenants was written by a man by the name of O. Palmer Robertson, and he wrote a book uh, called The Christ of the Covenants. And in that book, he, he writes these words, asking for a definition of covenant is something like asking for a definition of mother. You imagine trying to define mother. He goes on, a mother may be defined as a person who brought you into the world. That definition may be correct formally, but who would be satisfied with such a definition? Certainly not mom. <laughs> I wouldn't try that one, fellas, uh, with your mom. Don't do that. Um, nevertheless, Robertson offers this famous definition. He says, a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. Uh, hopefully in the next couple of weeks we'll get time to look at that because it's a really important definition. I'm going to give you another one that I want to look at this morning and really use it. What I want to try to do with this, this next definition is give you a couple of pegs to start hanging things on. Um, a, a great Scottish theologian by the name of Robert Rolock, he defined a covenant as this, quote, a promise under some certain condition. A promise under some certain condition. Condition. There are two words here that would make nice pegs, if you will, to put up in the brain to begin hanging things on. And the words are promise and condition. Promise and condition. Um, now, if we look back to our text again, if you look back to verse 12 of our text, notice the promise. There's a promise there, isn't there? What's the promise? What's God promising to do? He's promising to walk among us. Uh, you know, back in verse 11, he promises to dwell with us, doesn't he? Promises to dwell with us. He promises to be our God. He promises to make us his people. And furthermore, from verses 4 to 10, we just did a summary of a lot of promises that were made, right? Lots of promises that were made. So a, a covenant is a promise. A covenant is a promise. Now, notice the condition if you go back to verses 1 and 2. There's a condition. You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God, 
You shall keep my Sabbath and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. You see that? There's conditions, isn't there? Uh, they're summarized in verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them. Uh, then. We have this word then. So we have this conditional if. Okay, there's this if. The conditional if. And then we have a promise that follows the then. Does that sound reasonable so far? Conditional if, promise, then. Now, here we really need, I really need to pause and make a, a, a really important distinction. I mean, in fact, many theologians have been reluctant to even bring conditions into this because there's an inherent danger here. Um, uh, one could get the impression, looking at our text, that Leviticus 26.12 is nothing more than a covenant of works based purely on our performance of verses 1 through 3. In other words, if we're really good at doing the things that verses 1 to 3 tell us to do, then we're going to find God's favor by being really good at this. In fact, the better we can be at this, the better God's going to, is going to love us. It's easy to get that impression, wouldn't it? And many do get that impression. And that's what we refer to really as a, when, when, when the apostles speak of works, that's what they're talking about. It just goes something like this. You know, if I'm really a good boy or a good girl, God will, will love me um, all the more. If I'm not such a good boy or such a good girl, then he's going to love me. He's going to love me less. And this speaks back to what Spurgeon is on about. I mean, he says that, you know, many of the errors result and not being able to make this distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Now, I'm going to talk about the covenant of works next week. We're going to talk about the covenant of grace the week after, and we're going to be doing a lot of this back and forth to try to sort this out. But a lot of errors, a lot of errors occur over this. Uh, but for now, it's important for us to realize that covenants require a response of faith. They require, require a response of faith. It goes like this. God is making this promise to be our God. He's making this promise to walk with us, to dwell with us. Now, the one who receives this in faith says, my goodness, this is great news. Okay, out of thanksgiving for this great news. What is it, what is it that you want me to do, Lord? And I'll do my best to do it. And that's a whole different attitude and a whole different thing, isn't it? Than saying, okay, well, let's get started on, you know, I'm going to preach a series of sermons here on verses one through three, and we're going to get real good at verses one through three, and, and we're going to do, we're going to do, we're going to do, we're going to do. It's the exact opposite, isn't it? No, we bathe in the promise of God, and we receive the promise of God by faith. And as the promise of God by faith, as, as that promise enters into our hearts, as God wins our hearts with that promise, well, then we're His, right? The covenant requires a response of faith. And of course, we get busy in verses 1 to 3 out of thanksgiving for the favor that we already have with God, not in order to gain favor with God. Is that clear? Okay. All right. Now, as I've said in the scriptures, there are many covenants. And in terms of the covenants that God makes with man, there really only are two. And, you know, in the quotation, Spurgeon mentions both the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. You know, when God creates Adam, he places Adam into a covenant of works. 
uh, into a covenant of works. And because of this, I mean, some theologians call it a covenant of creation, uh, which I think is helpful, uh, but it can be unhelpful too. When you read different authors and you read different theologians, they sometimes use different names for the same thing. That's not helpful. As you can get confused sometimes as to what they're talking about. And in fact, even in the short quote from Spurgeon that I read to you, Spurgeon uses two different names for the covenant of works in that short quote. He says covenant of works and then later says covenant of law. So we, we have to learn how to pick up on those things. The Westminster Shorter Catechism and Larger Catechism call the covenant of works a covenant of life. Some of you remember who's studying the catechism with us on Wednesday nights will remember question number 12. Um, you know, when God creates Adam, he enters into a covenant with him. And uh, upon the condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. Do you remember that language? Um, so um, uh, what's going on here is when God creates Adam, he gives him certain things. He gives him certain conditions. And he says, listen, if you do this, then, you'll, then you, you will live. And Adam truly is in a, a covenant of works uh, with God. And we'll, we'll look at that in more detail uh, next week. But I think all of us know the answer to this. How well does Adam do in this covenant of works? How well does he do? Oh, yeah, not, not too good, huh? He does about like what we would do if we were in there, you know? I mean, that's, that tree, what is it with that tree? He told us we're not to eat from that tree, man. It's like, there's something about that tree. Let's go eat from that tree. I mean, could you all see yourselves doing that? I mean, I'd be eating from the tree. Would you? He, he falls. But immediately after he falls, God comes into the garden. And of course, he falls largely under the administration of Satan, speaking through the serpent, and we'll look at that next week. But God comes into the garden and he says to the serpent, quote, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 3.15, right? This is the first taste that we get in the Bible of the covenant of grace. It's the first taste we get of the covenant of grace. So we have two covenants. Um, and uh, what I want to do this morning is I want to take you back behind Genesis 3.15. I want to go back behind Genesis 3.15. In fact, what I want to do is I want to travel back before time even began and travel back, clear back into eternity past uh, is what I would like to do uh, this morning to look at what we call the covenant of redemption. Now, I said there, when it comes, this is a little confusing. Uh, when it comes to covenants that God has made with man, there are only two, but there are three. You like that? Isn't that cool? It's like God is one, but he's three. You know, in theology, we have this all over the place, don't we? Okay, there are two. Uh, but there are three. I hope to make that clear this morning. Um, as we read the pages of Scripture, we encounter a lot of mysterious verses that take us behind the passages of time. For example, turn back with me to 2 Timothy 1, 8 to 9 that we looked at uh, this morning as we started our service. Second uh, Timothy chapter 1, uh, verses 8 through 10 actually is what we read. 
Verse 8, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now notice verse 9. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before when? Before the ages began. It's just one of those verses that take you back, back before the administration of time, doesn't it? Back into eternity before the ages began. And if we look here, Paul is speaking of, of two things here. He's speaking of God's purpose, um, his own purpose, if you will. And God speaks, or Paul speaks of God's grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Um, he's doing the same thing in Ephesians. If you want to turn uh, left, just a couple of letters, um, uh, page 976, if you're using the church's Bible, to Ephesians chapter 1. It's just about 18 pages to, towards the front of the book. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, we look at these passages a lot. They're familiar. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with what? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In verse 4, even as he chose us in him before when? The foundation of the world. You see, that's another glimpse of back in eternity before anything was created, isn't it? That we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Now, if you look at chapter 3 of the same letter, Ephesians 3, and look at verse 11. This was according to the eternal what? The eternal purpose. There's that purpose again. That he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice that that purpose is an eternal purpose. Eternal means it has no beginning or end. It's really hard for us to conceive of that, isn't it? I remember being a little kid. I remember praying at night before I would go to sleep and I would ask God this continual question. God, who created you? Who made you? How did you, you know, as a young kid, I mean, I, I have a birthday comes up every once in a while, July. It's my favorite day of the year. I think it's all of our favorite days of the year when we're kids, isn't it? And, uh, okay, God wins, you know, who made you? It's, it's really hard to conceive of that, isn't it? That he always was, that he's never had a beginning. This purpose is eternal. It's without beginning. And uh, in these ver verses, we hear about God's eternal purpose of choosing us in Christ before the ages began. Jesus speaks this way too. On the night that he's betrayed, uh, the night that he would be arrested and that he would be uh, uh, given that kangaroo court, uh, Jesus, um, he enters into prayer. In John 17, it's recorded for us. He enters into prayer with the Father. We call it the high priestly prayer. And in that prayer, uh, Jesus says to the Father, quote, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. So, um, end of quote. So, uh, before Jesus came, the Father out of eternity gave an innumerable amount of people to Christ. An innumerable amount of people. In other words, before the ages began, the Father gives his people to the Son. Now, secondly, the work that Jesus came to do was work that the Son had agreed to do 
before the ages. Look at Ephesians 3.11 again with me. See, this was according to the eternal purpose. Do you see that language there? This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, the eternal purpose of God. Uh, This eternal purpose, this eternal work was given to the Son before the ages began. Before the ages began. Now, I could put it this way. Out of eternity, the Father chose his church. Put it a little more simply. And uh, out of eternity, the, the Son agreed to redeem this church who has been chosen. Um, and we might ask ourselves, okay, what's the Holy Spirit doing in all this? Well, the Holy Spirit's agreeing to apply the redemption that Jesus would accomplish. And you, hear me t- you hear me say things like this all the time where I'll say, you know, that it was the Father who, it was the Father who, who decreed everything that comes to pass, and it's the Son who's agreed to redeem the people, and the Holy Spirit has agreed to apply this redemption to us. You'll hear me say things like that once in a while in prayer, or once in a while in Bible study, or even once in a while in uh, sermons. And maybe sometimes you hear that and wonder, where does that come from? Well, this is where it comes from. Um, this is where it comes from. Um, Louis Burkhoff, who wrote one of the most important systematic theologies of certainly probably of the 20th century. It was a standard textbook in Reformed seminaries for many, many years. He points out along these lines, quote, wherever we have the essential elements of a covenant, namely contracting parties, a promise or promises, and a condition, there we have a covenant. I'm going to read that to you again. Wherever we have the essential elements of a covenant, namely contracting parties, a promise or promises, and a condition, there we have a covenant. Let me flesh that out. Who are the contracting parties? And the covenant of redemption, the covenant that's back behind Genesis 3.15, the, co- the parties are the Father and the Son. The Father and the Son. And uh, the Father promises the Son people. Says, remember, remember I asked you to hold on to those two words, promise and condition? Okay, here's a few things to loop over that hook, Okay. The Father is promising to the Son, people. And uh, we might add to that that the Father promises the Son a body. Um, You know, in Hebrews 10.5, some of you have come across this verse in your reading. Hebrews 10.5, quoting Psalm 40, says, A body you have prepared for me. Has anyone ever come across that verse before? A body you have prepared for me. Okay, that would be the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Father is promising the Son, listen, we're going we're to give you this body and, uh, uh, and we're also going to give you the empowerment to accomplish the task. Think of Isaiah 61. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. That's the promise of empowerment. And I think it's very interesting. Those of you who are familiar with Luke, you know, when Jesus begins his earthly ministry, he goes into his hometown of Nazareth and he stands up in the synagogue and he, he asks the attendant to give him a scroll and they hand him a scroll of Isaiah. And he, t- he opens up the scroll and turns to the place and what does he read? He reads the verses I just read to you. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is, is upon me. You see, the father promised him it would be out of eternity. I'm going to give you everything you need to do this. And the Son, out of eternity, promises to come in the person of Jesus and crush the head of that serpent. 
He promises to come in the person of Jesus and live that perfect life. He promises to come in the person of Jesus and take that perfect life and and offer it on the cross at the altars of his very own justice. Now, why am I taking you through all this mind-bending stuff? Was it because I enjoy this stuff? I do enjoy this stuff. I really love doing this. But that's not the reason I'm doing this. The reason I'm doing this is because what I have just shared with you is the gospel. This is the gospel. The covenant of redemption is another name for the gospel. The covenant of redemption reveals that in eternity past, an agreement was made between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to save people, to save fallen sinners like you and me. The Father agreed to give the Son a body and all of the empowerment he needed to go through the earthly ministry. And the Son agreed to go through the earthly ministry and the Holy Spirit agreed to apply this. So we have an agreement between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We also have a heart disposition, a heart attitude on behalf of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to do this. It was their desire to do this. They desire to do this. And uh, we look at this and we can ask ourselves, could this have failed? I mean, could it even have been possible for even a split second that this could have failed? The Father says to the second person of the Trinity, the Son, I'm going to give you people. And the Son says, I'm going to redeem them. And the Holy Spirit says, I'm going to apply that redemption to them, to turn their hearts of stone to a heart of flesh, so that they'll call on your name. Could that have failed? This is, this is the most certain thing in the cosmos here. It's the most certain thing in the cosmos. And furthermore, it shows us the certainty of our salvation if you're in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus this morning, you are saved. You are safe. But you know what else? You're cherished. You're cherished because God has decided to be your God. And he has been pleased to make us his people. Nothing will humble us like the gospel. You know that pride I was talking about at the beginning? Knowing that your salvation has nothing to do with your performance. Knowing that the only way you can come to Christ is as a blind beggar. Knowing that your eternal blessedness is the result of a covenant that took place back in eternity is humbling. If you're in Christ Jesus this morning, it's because of an agreement that was made before the ages began to bring you there. And it's been by the power of God that has brought you there. And it liberates us from our pride. 
so that we can really share in the wonder and the joy of what God has done. You're saved. You're safe. And you're cherished. Amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we thank you and praise you, Father, for these great truths, Father, as we've as we've done the best we can to travel back into eternity to try to grasp what you have done there, Father. We ask for your blessing, Lord, that you, Father, would be pleased to enable us to conceive of this as best we can, and that, Father, you would use this to to eradicate that shameful pride that, Father, keeps us from really seeing the joy and seeing the wonder of what you have done in Christ Jesus. So, Father, we commit these things to you and we call on you to work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.